0: Okay, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and we'll be reading in the CSB version today. If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along with us, and if you don't have one, we would love to gift one to you, and they're available just on those tables out in the vestibule. You can grab one on your way out. Again, our reading is in Genesis 16:1 through13. Abram's wife Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, "Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. perhaps th- through her I can build a family." And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy, for she said, In this place I have actually seen the one who sees me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Okay, so, um, so show of hands here, who, who here remembers a time when they were either uh, forgotten or left at the store or forgotten to be picked up by a parent or guardian? Anybody remember that? Okay, Oh oh wow, we have a lot of negligent parents. Okay, now flip side, who here has forgotten a child and left them somewhere, forgot to pick them up? Okay, okay, if you can admit that, all right, that's wonderful. Somebody right now is like, I think I left my child at home right now, I need to leave. Um, I, I remember the time when I like, was responsible for someone and left them behind. I was um, a youth intern when I was in college at a church, and I was entrusted with a group of 35 high schoolers to a trip to Chicago. I was barely out of high school myself, and I was in charge of these kids, and we had just come back from the mall, uh, back to our hotel room, and we were gathering in one of our rooms for a time of a Bible lesson I was gonna give. And as I was beginning, the phone rang in our, in our hotel room, and I instructed one of the kids just, just to hang it up, because like, I figured it was just the, the receptionist asking a question, and I was like, I'll just call him later. But then the phone rang again, and I instructed the same student to just, just hang it up, it's fine. This happened three more times, y'all. And then finally I answered it. And on the other line, to my dismay, was a very familiar voice. And it said, uh, Reed, this is Robbie. I'm still at the mall. And I was like, we had been gone for a solid 90 minutes, okay? And so we had to go back and pick him up, bring him back. And I kid you not, it had to be the senior pastor's son. And I somehow I still had a job after that, and so I am, I am unfireable, people. Um, but I can look back at that story and laugh. Um, I don't know if, if Robbie can at this point. Um, but I share this because while we've probably experienced something like this, that phenomenon, that feeling of being left behind is something that we have all experienced in some way. That this phenomenon of being forgotten, overlooked, disregarded, feeling invisible, It's something that we've all experienced. I mean, my guess is you have all felt this way in some point. In fact, some of us probably feel that even now in this room, we feel a sense of invisibility. We feel a sense of being unseen, overlooked, ignored, and forgotten. And this morning, as you heard in our text, we come to a story that is precisely about this feeling. This feeling of being forgotten, ignored, overlooked, And invisible. And it's a hard story to hear on several fronts, but particularly because I think we all identify with this feeling of being forgotten, ignored, and overlooked. And so what I, what I want to do this morning as we turn to Genesis 16, I want us to walk through this story, and I want to do so by highlighting the characters in it. There are some key characters that I want us to give our attention to as we turn to Genesis 16, and the first character that we are introduced to is the waiting wife, the waiting wife, which is Sarai, the wife of Abram. And, and Sarai, like, you know, if you're familiar with the story and, and you have some kind of religious background, you might have this kind of tendency to think, Sarai, oh, just like, I can't believe she did this. What a crazy idea that she came up with of giving Hagar to Abram. Like, that was not going to go well. And we just kind of look, look at her with disdain by, by the fact that she took matters into her own hands. But I want us to feel what Sarai is feeling. I want us to understand what led her to this decision, Because keep in mind, it has been an entire decade that has passed since God promised to Abram, you will bear a son. And in that whole span of 10 years, not an ounce of evidence uh, of a child coming forth from Sarai was was, uh, uh, observed. And so Sarai feels very much forgotten and dismissed. On top of that, if you notice throughout the story, God never speaks to Sarai. He only speaks to Abram. And so Sarai only knows of this promise of a child to be born to her. She only knows it secondhand from Abram. And so she's got to be thinking, God, am, am I unworthy to be spoken to by you? Like, is there something about me that has kept me from being worthy of hearing this promise? Why must you speak to Abram? And so in this moment, Sarai feels very much like God does not see her. And so while it appears that she is giving up on God, it's because in this moment, Sarai very much feels as though God has given up on her, which leads her to kind of make this decision of giving Hagar to her husband, Abram. And so while she may feel frustrated, unseen, and hopeless, it's this hopelessness that pushes her to make this decision to say, Hagar, I give you to my husband so that perhaps you can have a child with him. Now, as, as crazy as this idea sounds, and it is, uh, it, it was actually much more common and customary in the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, and, and largely because the, the plight of barrenness at this time, while, while barrenness is absolutely a devastating thing even in our day-to-day, barrenness in the ancient Near Eastern culture literally meant the end of your life, essentially, because if you weren't able to bear children, you didn't have enough workers to kind of help uh, grow crops. Really, having no children sealed your fate as essentially being homeless. Barrenness in that time was the equivalent to homelessness in our day today. And so, so in this situation, so again, it was more customary where, where this thing would take place. It doesn't mean that it's condoned by God; that God approves of this. Polygamy is never a part of God's design. Uh, And every time it happens in the Bible, it always produces problems, so don't do it. Okay, that's the first lesson, don't don't engage in polygamy. But but the point is is that that Sarai leads herself to make this decision because she believes it's the best option. And to make matters worse, the tension that is produced between her and uh, Hagar, it has led to also this tension with Abram, who is this completely unhelpful and passive husband in this situation. So much so that the, the point that Hagar gets uh, pregnant uh, produces tension between her and Sarai. Big surprise there. Okay, and so then Sarai goes to Abram and says, "There, you need to deal with this. Help me. There's tension here." And Abram basically says, "Not my problem. Not my problem. Deal with it." And so this actually then leads us to see the way in which Hagar, or sorry, Sarai and Abram treat Hagar. They basically continue to treat her as property which is actually precisely who she was and what she was to them. The reason we we read from the CSB this morning is because the translation of slave is the better term for who Hagar is. She was not simply a servant, she was enslaved by Abram and Sarai. And it is to this person that we turn our attention to in the story next, from the waiting wife to the abused woman. And so similarly, as I wanted us to feel what Sarai felt, I want us to sit in the situation of Hagar Hagar has been taken from her home, she's been enslaved by this this strange couple, and she has been forced to bear a child, all against her will. And eventually she's cast out, but the situation gets even worse. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 16. It says, Abram replied to Sarah, so this is after Hagar had conceived, Uh, Abram replied to Sarah, here your slave is in your hands, do whatever you want with her. And then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Now that word mistreated, that that doesn't nearly do justice to the meaning of the Hebrew word there. That that word mistreated, the Hebrew word literally means to oppress, to abuse. In fact, it's the exact same word used to describe the way the Egyptians would treat the Israelites when they were enslaved, enslaved in Egypt. And if you're familiar with the biblical storyline, you're sensing the great irony of how the father and mother of the nation of Israel has a slave themselves and is mistreating her. And so when we read the story of the Bible and the patriarchs, far from these characters being moral people that we should look up to, the story is telling us that God uses broken, rebellious, sinful people to accomplish his purposes. In this story, we see the great and haunting irony that the mother and father of Israel have a slave themselves and are treating her the exact same way that their descendants will be treated in Egypt. And so, in this situation, Hagar feels as though, like, I mean, the, the situation is so dire that her only option before her is to face the desert by herself and to journey back to Egypt as a poor, Lonely, pregnant, single mom. This is her best decision. Like, rather than stay with this chaotic couple, I'm going to brave the desert and leave in hopes of finding my way back home. And in this moment is when we are introduced to the seeing God. You see, in many ways, Hagar is the focal point of this story. Well, well, yes, I mean, yes, the, the, the focus of, of Scripture is on God and the glory of God, absolutely. But what's so fascinating is that God's focus is on Hagar. Hagar is the focal point of the story because God himself is uniquely focusing on her. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. It says that the angel of the Lord, which I'll explain in a second, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, there are a lot of theories of, of who the angel of the Lord is, uh, and I, I don't have time to get into the details of it, but like, is, is it the angel Gabriel? Is this a pre-incarnate Jesus? Is this just some like lowly angel intern who like had to drew the short straw and had to go to the desert? Like, like who is the angel of the Lord in this setting? And and regardless of who the angel of the Lord is, what is unique, what is important for us to know is that the angel of the Lord is seen by Hagar as if he is the Lord himself. And and this was very common actually in the Old Testament in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that, that a messenger of God or a messenger of a king, in fact, the word angel literally means just messenger, but that a messenger of a king was to be seen and treated and valued and feared just as much as the king himself. And in the same way, the angel of the Lord, who is this unique messenger of God, is being seen by Hagar, and Hagar is treating him and interacting with this angel as if it is God himself. So I think it's fair to say that, that God himself is speaking to Hagar through the angel of the Lord, uniquely speaking to this woman who is lost and wandering in the desert all alone, feeling utterly invisible. And what I love about this interaction is that it's it's not like God stumbles across Hagar, like he's looking for his keys in the desert and he finds Hagar instead. Like the the purpose is that the language communicates that God has found her as if he were in search for her because he doesn't come across her and say like, woman, what are you doing? Have you found my keys? Like he speaks to her directly and uses her name, but in in addition to her name, he says, uh, Hagar, slave of Sarai which is to say that God not only knows her by name, but he knows her situation. He knows where she has come from. He knows her oppression. He knows her pain, and he knows what has brought her to this point where she thought her only option was to brave the desert by herself as a single, poor, single mother. So in other words, what God is saying here is that he knows exactly who who Hagar is and he knows exactly what she has gone through. And you know what's really fascinating about this exchange is that this is the only time in, in ancient Near Eastern literature that we have recorded for us. It's the only time recorded of a deity speaking to a woman by name. It's the only time. And in this moment, the God of all things, the creator of heaven and earth, is speaking to a woman, calling her by name. And it's not a princess. It's not a queen. It's not a matriarch of any kind. It is a lowly, enslaved, pregnant, single mother. And God comes to her to let her know that she is seen, that she is heard, that she is known and understood and loved by the God of seeing. Which is, which is why Hagar then responds to this God, to the angel of the Lord who is God represented in this moment. In verse 13, Hagar says, So she named the Lord who spoke to her, U R L Roy, which means a God of seeing or the God who sees. For she said, In this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? which is so profound that, that, I mean, Hagar, again, this woman who's not a part of the, the line of promise, she's not a part of the nation of Israel, this woman is being seen by God, spoken to by God in a unique way. In fact, it's the only time in Scripture where a human confers a name upon God. There are many instances of people calling God, you know, different names, that Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, but this is the only time in Scripture where a human gives God a name, and it is here And again, who is it that does it? It is a lonely, lowly slave girl. And the highest king of heaven receives this name joyfully, so much so that, that this word is now recorded for us to know and to see that God is the God of the outcast, of the marginalized, of the forgotten, the oppressed, and the invisible. And so, so in this story, when you see what God promises to Hagar as well, you will have a child and he will have a mighty nation. His name will be Ishmael, and that name Ishmael means God has heard. And so when, when you look at the story, the name of Ishmael, God has heard, and the, the name that Hagar gives God, El Roy, a God of seeing, it is abundantly clear, God wants us all to know that his, that his sensory faculties work very well. That God sees and hears and knows us deeply. That in this moment, what God is tenderly telling Hagar, but through this story is telling us, is this profound truth, that you are never invisible to the God who sees. You are never invisible to the God who sees. And I want us us all to just sit in that truth for just a minute because we we so often sit in the lies of God doesn't see me, God doesn't care about me, God doesn't know what's going on. God is only concerned with these kind of 30,000-foot categories. He is not uniquely and intimately aware of my pain, of my fear, of my suffering, of my doubts and questions. But what the story of Hagar is for us is really a, a megaphone, so to speak, where God is lovingly yet boldly telling us, you are never invisible to the God who sees And when we believe this to be true, like if if this actually penetrated our minds and hearts and we knew this to be true, it would radically transform our suffering. And hear me, I'm not saying that it takes away our suffering. God never promises that we will, will, if you follow me, worship me, walk before me, your life will be perfect and peachy, filled with rainbows and cupcakes all your day long. Like, Like there's never that promise in scripture. But instead, when we know that we are never invisible to the God who sees us, what that means is that our, our, our suffering is transformed. And that that, that knowledge that God sees us, it, it strikes this profound blow to our suffering. And you and I know, we all know this. Even if we may disagree with this theologically or have convictions uh, or, or objections to it, we all know the phenomenon of being in a place of heartache and pain and sorrow. And someone comes along and sits with us in it and says, I know what you're feeling, I see you in your pain, man, this is terrible. Or even if they can't even fully understand, to even say, I can't imagine what you're going through. Those moments, while they do not completely erode our suffering, they in some ways weaken our suffering. Because the most comforting thing we can find in those moments is not someone to come down and say, I hear you're suffering, here's a pamphlet with seven ways to stop suffering. Like, no one wants to hear that in times of heartbreak, but what we want to hear from someone is that they see us in our pain, and that they say there's legitimacy to what you've experienced. I I, I was uh, reminded of this recently where my my son Edmund, who will be three at the end of July, he has a tiny mouth... Uh, well, he, he actually has a big mouth, you know, metaphorically, but he has a tiny mouth, and he bites his tongue constantly. And so meal time is, is a very painful time for him. And, and what I, this, recently there was a moment where he bit his tongue, and he's freaking out, and you all know that pain. It's terrible. And so I got down next to him, I said, Eddie, I know that hurts. I said, do you want Daddy to bite his tongue too? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and so I stuck my tongue out, and I, I pretend to bite. I'm like, ow! And then he just starts laughing, even through his tears. Now, does that moment, and you know, I, I don't like literally bite my tongue and I'm bleeding. You know, that would be a little bit extreme. So I guess I'm kind of lying to my kid. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> the point is that in that moment, Eddie is seen in his pain, and and I and he's I'm sharing in his pain. I want him to know. I know what you're going through. I know what it feels like. Because our suffering, I believe, is weakened when it is seen and heard and understood. When it is given credence and credibility by someone else. You're never invisible to the God who sees. When our suffering is seen by someone else, it it is weakened, and how much more so when it is seen by God, the one who has infinite knowledge, wisdom, power, and love. But my guess is that even now, in church, sitting in this room, filled with people, hearing a sermon about how God sees you and hears you, Many of us still feel very invisible. We feel, we feel unseen, we feel overlooked, we feel dismissed. And in fact, it's probably church where you uniquely and acutely feel your invisibility, which is so strange in some ways and yet so familiar. Perhaps you feel invisible, and, and the list is endless, we could talk about it, but, but perhaps you feel invisible like Sarai because you're waiting for God to bless you with a child. Perhaps that, that longing for a child has been so long going and so painful that you feel like no one else understands. I mean, gosh, especially on, on VBS Sunday where there's all these kids up here singing, this church is filled with families or smiling, all this stuff. That pain can feel so acute in this space, and you feel like no one understands, no one sees, and no one gets your pain. Perhaps you feel invisible because, like Hagar, you're in a job that's demeaning and dehumanizing or or it feels like a dead end, that you're not in the place where you feel like you want to be or should be. You feel unseen, undervalued, unappreciated in the work that you do. Or perhaps you're unemployed or underemployed. And the shame that that brings of of feeling the sense of insecurity or even the sense that, that you're not where you want to be or should be, you feel as though this crippling fear and anxiety is too much to bear and no one can understand Perhaps you feel invisible because you have found that that throughout your life, there's been this struggle of of something like like same-sex attraction. And you feel as though the church is not a place where you can struggle well. You're you're committed to following Jesus and and complying with his design for life, but but you feel as though you're unseen because there's not a place in the church for you to struggle to be open and honest. Or maybe something like gender dysphoria where there's so much confusion, so much hurt and hate language around that that you don't know, is the church a place where I can belong as I struggle through this and follow Jesus, again, the list is endless. Maybe it's because you're you're a minority in a majority culture. Maybe it's because you're an unbeliever in a church and you feel completely estranged. Maybe it's because you find yourself suffering from a mental illness or you have a criminal background or, or you're widowed or divorced or you're being abused. Again, I could keep going, people. And in these moments, we feel utterly invisible and unseen. And if that's you, if you find yourself this morning, even in this space, feeling invisible, what I want you to hear and to know is that God sees you in your suffering. He doesn't just see you, but he sees you in your suffering. If there's one one thing that I know definitively about who God is is that he is uniquely and intimately acquainted with those that suffer. And no other place is this truth seen so clearly than in the book of Psalms. Psalm 34, verse 18 declares, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When we feel as though God is absent in these times of heartache and pain and suffering, it is actually when God is closest to us. Why? because our God identifies with those that suffer in unique and profound ways. Psalm 56.8, which is probably one of the most profound psalms in my own life, where I came to see this truth that yes, God is glorious and big and he knows everything, but this psalm declared to me that God knows me uniquely. As the psalmist says, you have kept count of my tossings, or the, the word also means wanderings, which is what Hagar was doing in the desert. And you have put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? You see, our God knows every tear that we have shed and every reason for why we have shed them. And in fact, he adds his tears to ours so that we may not have to shed as many. Psalm 31.7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Why? Because you've removed all barriers and heartaches and difficulties in my life. No. But because you have seen my affliction and you know the distress of my soul. So what is it that enables us to rejoice in God, to declare his goodness, to see him and behold him and worship him and walk before him in all things? It is not the removal of suffering and pain. But it is knowing that God sees us in our suffering and knows the distress of our soul. And when we know that, when we know that when we know it in our knower, you know, like when we know this truth deeply, we're more likely to respond to God's call to see others. You see, God sees us in our suffering, but in that he also calls us to see others in their suffering. And I, now I know, I'll be the first to say it, our church, we, are not, we are not the best at helping curb or, or diminish or mitigate this feeling of invisibility that many of us feel for whatever reason. But, but I, hear me too, that it is our deep desire to be a caring family. Not just as a staff, but all of us. Like, like when I talk about the church, like that's y'all, okay? We are the church and we long to be a caring family. It's why we are so devoted to the practice of learning names and remembering names. And, and folks, that does not come easy. That is like no one, no one remembers names easily. In fact, we just wrote a blog about this. You can check it out on our website, just about the importance of remembering, remembering names. But we do this not so that we can look impressive to you, like, wow, what a great memory you have. Like, no, that's not it. But rather so that we might be ambassadors and representatives of the God who sees. So that people might be known and feel known and loved in this space. And what I love seeing is that you all are doing that. Yes, we have so much room to grow. And yes, there are some people here who say, you're not doing it that well, and I get that. But we long to be this caring family. In fact, recently I spoke with a church family member who was just telling me, she said, Reed, I just, and she was just kind of expressing how loved and known and felt she has been in this church. And she said this, she said, Reed, if everyone in the world could feel as loved and as known and as seen as I have felt by this church family, everyone would believe in Jesus. <laughs> and, 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 and I get like, some of you are like, that's not a very good argument for Jesus. Like, I, I get that, I get that. But the point is, is that don't, don't you long for that for yourself? Don't you long for that for other people where people are known and felt and seen and heard? And so, friends, the question to you is, do you see others in your life? Yes, we need to see that God sees us in our suffering, but does that compel us to be a people who see others in our life? Are you making them feel more or less invisible through your actions, through your words, through your inactions, and through your absent words? And and not not just on Sunday, like this is important, we should should feel known and seen and heard and see others in this space, but how are you helping people feel less invisible in your Monday life as well? As you think about where you spend the majority of your life, think about your workplace, especially if you're a person who is in a managerial position or uh, if you're an employer, do you see the people you work with and who work for you? Not just do you know their names and do you know their job descriptions and their salaries, and their, and their annual re- review reports, like, but do you see them and know them? Do you value and appreciate their work specifically and uniquely? Do you express gratitude to them and in unique ways? Like, I'm not saying like, good job on adequate work this week. Like, it has to be more specific than that. And some of you are like, yes, I express gratitude. I give them a paycheck every week. I was like, okay, that's wonderful, that's great, good job. But, But when we lack gratitude, when we do not express gratitude to people, an absence of gratitude is always translated as ingratitude, always. Do you see and value and appreciate and have a thankful heart for the work of those you work with? Are you creating an environment where your people can flourish, where they're enjoying their work, where they feel cared for and known by those that they work with? Or are you guilty of dehumanizing and demeaning practices where your people are simply seen as means to the end of increasing the bottom line of the company? Hear me, there's nothing wrong with building economic capacity. That's good, that's an important thing, but it is never good and never allowed at the expense of making someone feel invisible or dehumanized in their work. How are you helping people see that they are seen in your Monday life? Or, or, or think about your social circles, your neighborhood, your community, your group of friends. Are there people in your life that you discount, look past, disregard, completely ignore because they live in a different neighborhood or, or their home is more run down or maybe they don't dress like you, they come from a different culture, they speak differently, whatever it may be. What, who are the people in your life that you see as having no real value in your life you discount because of who they are? Or, Perhaps if you're a part of the the majority culture, which, which is largely all of us, the white majority culture, are you doing something that is helping our minority brothers and sisters feel more visible, or are you perpetuating the feeling of invisibility by ignoring or downplaying their pain and experiences? In his very helpful book, *The Minority Experience* by Adrian Pay, uh, Adrian Pay is a phenomenal Christian leader uh, has worked for a uh, crew, and, and in this book, he talks about this phenomenon of how we dismiss, or mitigate, or, or or completely diminish, or ignore the pain of someone else. He says this: just as there is no resurrection without death, there is no compassion without pain. We must feel the pain of the minority experience before we can build the compassion to see those who are invisible. And while pay is speaking specifically to the minority person, this, this is true of, of all contexts wherein in which we suffer. Because he, here's one thing I know I've come to found to be so true in ministry in life, is that if you want a really fast way to make someone feel invisible, discount or diminish or ignore their pain. Or explain it away. Like, well, what you're experiencing is actually this. Or, or you at least them to death. Well, at least you have this. Well, at least this didn't happen. Well, it's like... We need to strike those two words, at least, from our compassionate vocabulary. When we discount or disregard or ignore the pain of someone else, that is the fastest way to make them feel invisible. But conversely, the fastest way, I think, to make someone feel visible is to see them in their pain, to give credence and credibility to it, To say, I see you, and and I may not fully understand it, but I want to. I want to sit with you in it. I want to know what you've gone through. I want to listen. I want to shut my mouth for like nine months and listen to you for like six years. How can we do this? Are we seeing people? And this is exactly what God has done for Hagar. And this is exactly what God does for us. Because at the heart of this story, we see this profound truth that you are never invisible to the God who sees. But what the story is also pointing us to, yes, it shows us that God sees us in our suffering. Yes, it shows us that God calls us to see others. But thirdly, we see what the story is actually pointing us to is that, is that God came so that you could see him. God came so that you could see him because no other God has the eyes that our God has. No other God sees us in the way in which our God sees us because no other God has entered into humanity being fully God and fully man, embracing and having human eyes to see us in our broken humanity. In the most powerful and loving way, God entered our lives not just to see us in our pain, he absolutely did that, but so that he would share with us in our pain by actually becoming our suffering, becoming our shame, becoming our guilt and sin. Because you see, the God who saw Hagar in her place of hopelessness is the same God who would look upon another woman who felt incredibly invisible and all alone. We know this woman who's been made famous in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, is the woman at the well. The woman said to him, "'I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. "'When he comes, he will tell us all things.' "'And Jesus said to her, "'I who speak to you am he.'" And so after seeing the one who saw her, this woman at the well who felt completely invisible because of of her shame and her backstory, she goes into town, a town where she is known infamously, and she goes in declaring the good news of the one who saw her. And in verse 29, we read these words, "'Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. "'Can this be the Christ?' You see, the story of the seeing God in Genesis 16 is actually pointing us to the story of the suffering Savior. The suffering Savior, the one who sees us most profoundly and intimately, because in the story of Jesus, Jesus being fully man, is able to enter in and to actually suffer with us. He literally became our suffering. But Jesus being fully God is also able to do something about our suffering once and for all, to bring an end to it when all things are made new both the suffering of our own making and the suffering that has been brought about upon us through the decisions and the brokenness of other people. The God who saw the hopelessness of Hagar in the desert, the God who saw this invisible woman at the well wandering away from her community is the same God who sees you in your suffering and the same God who sees me in mine. You are never invisible to the God who sees. But the question is, have you been found by the God of seeing? Have you come to see the one who sees you? Yes, we may know that God sees us in our suffering, but have you come to see him in his suffering? Have you come to see him suffering on the cross on your behalf so that you might be freed of guilt and shame knowing that you are seen and loved and known by the God who sees? God has seen your suffering, but have you seen his? You are never invisible to the God who sees.